بسم الله بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن وله أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته How's everybody doing? Alhamdulillah. So, uh, today, inshallah ta'ala, we are continuing on the Hadith Jibreel. And we talked about uh, the question, Akhbirni an al-Iman, tell me about Iman, and then uh, that you believe in Billahi wa malaikati wa kutubihi wa rusli. And so we were still on that one. We're still just talking about really the concept of Iman in general. Because uh, this concept of Iman is a broad, broad concept, and it can be... Uh, explained in many different ways. In fact, one way that I think, I kind of touched upon it last time, but I, I came up with a way to make it a little bit more concise, uh, I think, wallahu alam, a little bit more of a concise way of explaining uh, this concept of iman and how it differentiates from just a belief that you hold. Like, you know, you can believe, like I, I gave the example before, that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but your belief in that doesn't go up or down, it doesn't change in any way. You just believe it when you're a kid, you find out it makes sense to you, you say, yeah, it makes sense, I believe it, and then that's it, it just stays at that same st steady state for the rest of your life. And the analogy I like to give is of a smoker. Imagine a smoker who goes to med school, right? So every single day he's learning more and more and more about how bad smoking is for his body, but he keeps doing it anyway. So every single day what's happening, his knowledge is increasing, but no application whatsoever. And then let's say after you know, many years of being a pulmonologist, somebody who specializes in the lungs, and his, you know, the staff and his uh, patients are, 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 are nagging him, saying, how dare you, you're such a hypocrite, you're telling us to you know, uh, you know, take care of our lungs and you're not taking care of your own lungs. After so much nagging, he finally gives in and finally says, you know what, I'm going to apply my knowledge and I'm not going to smoke anymore. So now he's done two things. He's increased in knowledge, and number two, he's increased in application. But he's not happy about it. He did it out of peer pressure. He did it because he was forced. He did it because the people were making fun of him and so forth. And then let's say after months and months, you know, he finally loses all the withdrawal symptoms and he, start, he starts to, you know, stop, his, his lungs start to feel better. He starts to exercise more. He can breathe easier. Every time he wakes up, he's not coughing up like tar. And so he starts, after many months, he realizes, you know what, I love this and I'm so glad I'm applying my knowledge. So now he has all three categories, which is what? He's increased in knowledge and then he increased in application and then he increased in contentment and satisfaction. So the reason I paint this picture is just to, just to remind us that you can see how knowledge can increase and de decrease based on how much you learn or how much you forget. Uh, application can obviously increase or decrease d depending on how much you actually apply what you know. And then third, uh, and thirdly, uh, uh, your level of uh, satisfaction with what you know can also increase and de decrease depending on you know, your mood or depending on you know, your, 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 state of, your state of mind. So I, I like this analogy because it very clearly shows that, you know, Yes, he could believe that smoking is bad for him, but knowledge can increase or decrease, application can increase or decrease, and then finally satisfaction with that can increase or decrease. And this analogy kind of paints all three. And the whole idea is that that's how Iman is. It's not just like, I believe it and that's it. It's more like, no, how much, do you, how much are you trying to learn? How much are you trying to apply? And how much are you satisfied with that? So anyway, that's what we talked about uh, last time. And I think that this uh, analogy is, is helpful. Allah knows best. Anyway, we want to move on now. We're speaking specifically about the belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you believe in Allah. Now we talked about tawheed. So the, the standard, actually, you asked me about this earlier, the standard categorization of tawheed. How can somebody explain tawheed in a way that uh, clarifies things? And usually, the, one of the most popular ways is rububiyya, uluhiyya, asma wa sifat. So these are three categories. They're, not, they're nowhere found in the Qur'an or Sunnah. This is not something that is prescribed by the Prophet However, this is something that scholars throughout the years uh, found it easier to put these concepts into categories so that you could break it down and look at it 
for all that it is. And, and there's other ways of breaking down this concept of Tawheed in other ways as well, just to be clear, uh, and I'm going to do so uh, soon after. You'll see, you'll see how they are kind of similar, but also there's a little, some small differences. But anyway, it's all to help you conceptualize how we are supposed to interact with this concept of Tawheed or oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when it comes to Rububiyyah, it comes from the word Rabb, and the word Rabb, Allah is Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. The Rabb is the Lord or cherisher. He is the sustainer. He is the creator. And so Rububiyyah is the basic concept that there is a creator to this universe and a sustainer of this universe. And by the way, the concept of Rububiyyah is extremely, extremely universal. And what I mean by that is that if you just take a census of humanity, most people believe in some sort of higher power. They believe in something that is greater than them, that is like this all-encompassing divine spirituality something. They, they don't usually define it very well, but they say, yes, I do think that you know, there is some sort of a creator or somebody that gave us some sort of a purpose or that sustains us. I do believe there's more to this world than just the physical world itself. And so you find that actually the concept of this lordship or rububiyya is something that it permeates humanity, not just today, but also historically. There's always been uh, different iterations of this concept of the divine. And the reason is because ultimately human beings are spiritual creatures, right? The, the concept of being a staunch atheist and disbelieving in everything, that is an extreme minority position. It always has been, and really it always will be. Because the fitrah of Allah is one that human beings are spiritual creatures by nature. The issue comes in with uluhiyyah. Uluhiyyah is making Allah Ta'ala your only ilah. And the word ilah is like an object of worship, your object of devotion, the thing that you are, you are obsessed with, the thing that you are most concerned about. That is your ilah. And as a Muslim... We, as Muslims, we all say what? La ilaha illallah. There is nothing at the top of my list of importance. There is nothing that is more uh, uh, interesting to me, the thing that I'm more obsessed about, other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The thing that I'm most passionate about, the thing that I'm most driven about, the thing that I work hardest for, the thing that all my actions revolve around, they are my ilah, and I have no ilah other than Allah. And it doesn't matter who you are, everybody has some ilah. Even if they say, I don't believe in anything, you can say, fine, you don't believe in anything. But let's, let me observe your life. At, if I observe your life long enough, I'm going to find that there's one thing that you're most concerned about. There's going to be one thing that you care the most about. Some people, they care the most about fun. Some people care the most about money. Some, care, some people care the most about status. Whatever the case is, there's going to be something that stands out in your list of priorities as number one. And we would say, just based on definition, therefore that is your ilah. The number one concern of yours. So obviously the Muslim says, my number one concern is Allah Ta'ala. Hence, la ilaha illallah. And the idea is that the Qur'an very consistently, there's many different places in the Qur'an in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about how rububiyyah is understood. You're just supposed to make the translation or the transition from rububiyyah to uluhiyyah. In other words, the Arabs at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they understood that there was a divine creator. They obviously knew that there was this Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah existed, was our creator and sustainer, etc. Their problem was devoting their worship entirely to Allah alone. They were too used to offering worship to this, that, or the other. They liked to make up their own rules. Obviously, these idols of theirs, they didn't make up any, you know, they didn't come with any legislation, right? Obviously, they're idols. They don't come with anything. They're just idols. So when you carve your own idols, you can make up your own backstory. You can say that, oh, this is the name, and this is the, uh, uh, you know, the powers that it has, and these are the rituals that it likes. Basically, you can make up whatever you want. So really, their religion was in their own hands, and that's what they liked. They liked to basically apply my religion when I felt like it, and not apply it when I don't like it, right? It's a religion of convenience. But the idea that Allah is really the creator and we have to obey him not on our terms but on his terms we're not comfortable with that 
And you find throughout the Qur'an, subhanAllah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to shift and say, listen, you know that there is a creator. Now you need to apply that in your life and do what? And actually worship him and actually devote yourself to him. So transition from rububiyyah to uluhiyyah. I'll give an example in just a moment, but the, the third one that I want to mention is asma wa sifat. And asma wa sifat means the names and attributes, referring to the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And these names and attributes basically, you could say, uh, uh, I mean, once you have the concept of, 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 of there is a creator and, uh, and a sustainer, that's, yes, those are definitions, but that's it. That's all you really know from a, from a logical perspective. And this is something that the Greek logicians came to, uh, you know, a long time ago, that there must be an unmoved mover or an uncaused cause. There must be something that started everything. But that's all the qualities that you can come to uh, based on your own rationality. So you, there is, there's definitely, just rationally speaking, there must be a necessary being. But how much can we know about the necessary being? Whatever else we can know about him, know about Allah Ta'ala, is basically through revelation. Only through revelation do we find out that Allah is Al-Samir, Al-Basir, Al-Hakim, Al-Wadud, Al-Alim, and etc., 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 all the names of Allah. This is through revelation. And so, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that the human being can come to the conclusion that there is a Rabb, there is a master and a creator by their own rationality, but then to know that Lord more, to understand Allah better, yes, you're going to need revelation. That Allah Ta'ala is going to have to send revelation to say, this is who I am. And explain the asma wa sifat, the names and attributes of Allah. That I am forgiving, but I'm also somebody that shadidul aqab. I'm I'm swift in punishment, for instance. And so, essentially, the, the the function they play in our lives, asma wa sifat, is that they make us want to worship Allah more. So, because already we, we we understand that Allah is the Creator, and He created everything around me, and Allah Taala has control over everything. Okay, this I can I can deduce rationally. But when I learn more and more about Allah, it makes me want to transition to uluhiyyah even more. It makes me want to worship Him even more sincerely. So I'll give you an example of this whole, you know, uh, you could say, uh, uh, using the concept of lordship and trying to bring it to the concept of worship. Allah Ta'ala says in the Qur'an, this is like a, you could say a back and forth in the Qur'an, that Allah is, tell, uh, Allah is telling His Messenger, وسلم, say this to the disbelievers. Uh, uh, this is in Surah Mu'minun. قُلْ لِمَنِ الْأَرْضُ وَمَنْ فِيهَا إِنْ كُنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ سَيَقُولُونَ لِلَّهِ قُلْ أَفَلَا تَذَكَّرُونَ So Allah Ta'ala begins by saying, Say, O Muhammad Sallallahu tell these disbelievers, to whom belongs the earth and whoever is in it, if you should know. And they will say, Allah says, they will say, for sure they're going to say, لِلَّهِ It belongs to Allah. Like they know that there must be a creator. They say, to Allah. And then so say to them, in response to that, then will you not remember? So this is an attempt to say, listen, you know that there's rububiyyah, you know that there's a, a, an ultimate Lord and creator and sustainer. Now you need to apply that, remember that, and live by that in your actual daily worship. Next ayah. Say, قُلْ مَنْ رَبُّ السَّمَاوَاتِ السَّبْعِ وَرَبُّ الْعَرْشِ الْعَظِيمِ Say, who is the Lord of the seven heavens and the Lord of the great throne? They will say, it belongs to, they belong to Allah. So then say to them, will you not fear Him? And then again, continuing. Say, in whose hands is the realm of all things... And he protects while none can protect against him. If you should know. And they will say, it is to Allah, belongs to Allah. Then how are you deluded? Qul, say this, tusharun. So how are you deluded? So you see three times back and forth, the Qur'an is saying, listen, they know that there must ultimately be a creator. Every human being has this in their fitrah. That there must be an ultimate creator and sustainer of the universe. The problem isn't that. Same thing today, you could go around and do a census if you'd like. The vast majority of humanity will straight up say, yes, I do believe in some sort of a divine. I do believe there's something behind this uh, uh, natural uh, material world. There is something spiritual. 
the vast majority of the only question is, okay, take that knowledge and transition into your behavior. Worship that Lord. Try to be a good person. Try to get closer to that Lord. Learn about this creator. That's the part that they have difficulty with. So subhanAllah, it's really interesting, this transition from arububiyya uh, to uluhiyya, if you will. Another way of looking at it, another breakdown of the categories of tawheed is into two categories. And then these two categories have three underneath each one. It's really quite uh, beautiful. Personally, I like this one better because I find it's more all-encompassing. There is, you could say, tawheed al-ilmi or tawheed al-i'tiqadi, which is the oneness of, of your belief in Allah Ta'ala or of your, yeah, your belief or your knowledge of Allah. And then there's what? Al-Tawheed Al-Amali or Al-Tawheed Al-Ibadah, which is the application. Which, so, so theory and practice, two categories, theory and practice, right? Very straightforward. So what are these two categories? You could say when it comes to the, uh, the, the category of theory, theoretical knowledge about Allah, it breaks down to Tawheed Al-Dhat, Tawheed Al-Sifat, and Tawheed Al-Af'al. The oneness of Allah Ta'ala in His essence, say Allah is one and only, that He doesn't have a trinity or multiplicity in some way. No, Allah is purely one in His, in his essence. Tawheed as-sifat, in all of His qualities and attributes, that means nobody is comparable to Allah in any of His attributes and characteristics. And that's, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ Allah says in the Qur'an. And number three is uniqueness, tawheed al-af'al, uniqueness in His actions. In other words, whatever Allah does, nobody can compare to what Allah does. And a good example of this is when Allah says, "Allahu uh, khalaqakum, thumma razaqakum, thumma yumitukum, thumma yuhyikum. Hal min shurakaikum man yafalu min min thalikum min shay subhanahu wa taala amma yishrikun." That Allah Taala says, "Allah is the one who created you." And then he sustained you, he gives, he gives you sustenance, and then he gives you death and he gives you life. So is there from any of your shuraka, of, of your associates, any, any of the shirk that you do, is there anybody that can do anything like this? In other words, nobody can do anything like what Allah does. Giving life, giving death, giving sustenance, a resurrection, etc. All these things, uh, creation. Allah Ta'ala in his af'al, in his actions, he's completely unrivaled. Subhanahu wa ta'ala amma yishrikun. Allah Ta'ala is high above anything they associate with Him. So Allah Ta'ala is unique in His that, in His essence. Say that Allah is one and only. In His asma wa sifat, nothing is like Him in His qualities and attributes. And that in His actions, nobody can do what Allah does. Like for example, creating the universe and so on and so forth, being a provider, sustainer, you know, growing the crops and sending the rain and all these different things. Khair inshallah. So that's in terms of theory. That's ilmi. On the other side was what? Amali. Or, or you could also say, Tawheedul uh, Ibadah. Uh, the oneness of... So now that we know the theory, we have to apply it in our action. It's basically like, okay, what we should know about Allah in theory, like just with regards to Himself, but now how do we bring ourselves into the equation, application-wise? There's three different ways. One is that Allah has the only right to legislate. This is Tawheed al-Hakimiyyah. Allah is the only one that can legislate. Number two is, he's the only one that deserves devotional acts of worship. You can call this Tawheed al-Uluhiyya or Ifradullahi bin Nusuk. You could say that this is uh, uh, making Allah Ta'ala one and unique in his, in your sacrifice or in your devotional acts. And then number three is, uh, he is the only one that deserves your complete and utter loyalty. This is Ifradullahi bil Wilayah. That your wilaya is to Allah Ta'ala and Allah alone. So to give evidences for each of these, uh, an example of, there's several, many examples, but one example for the uh, Tawheed al is Allah says, إِنَّ الْحُكْمُ إِلَّا لِلَّهِ That indeed, 
Hukum, the, the ruling is only for Allah. Allah is the only one that can legislate. Allah is the only one that can write laws, right? Like the idea that, uh, you know, murder is wrong. You know, I can't just say, well, I think murder is wrong because, you know, I, I see uh, you, Brother Muhammad, you're a very precious person. Well, who cares what I think? Maybe, I'll, maybe one day I'll think he's precious and then maybe the next day I'll think, you know what, off with his head, right? No, Allah Ta'ala is the one who legislates and says that you can't just take life. Allah is the only one that can make something halal or haram. Allah is the only one that can say, you know, this is what you can eat, this is what you can't eat. This is how you can, uh, you know, uh, conduct, let's say, war or conduct uh, uh, transactions. You know, riba is haram, whereas, uh, you know, sale, bay' is halal, for example. And so on and so forth. There's many examples uh, we can think of. Hukum, uh, different ahkam, rulings. Allah is the only one that can give ahkam. Furthermore, Allah is the only one to be worshipped. And this is, you know, uh, again, going back to Tawheed al-Uluhiyah, or the concept that Allah is unique in His worship. And this is, for example, It is you alone that we worship. So clearly, uh, uh, you know, we can't worship other than Allah. That's the most obvious, perhaps. And then the third one is complete and un- complete utter uniqueness in terms of our loyalty. Allah Ta'ala says, إِنَّمَا وَلِيُكُمُ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولُهُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا So uh, uh, your wali, your true ally, is only Allah and His Messenger and the believers and so forth. So in other words, uh, wilaya, this concept of, uh, uh, of taking uh, as a um, devoted friend or a trustee or someone that you are completely you know, um, allied to, this is something that is only for Allah and the Messenger and the believers. So these are all different forms of tawheed with regards to uh, Allah's essence, Allah's qualities and attributes, His actions, and then in terms of on our end, legislation, Devotion and complete and utter loyalty. So I hope that sort of summarizes Amantu Billah, I believe in Allah. Then we move on to Malaika. Because the Prophet said that Iman is to believe in Allah, in the angels. And like I said, the, the order of it is because Allah Ta'ala is the creator, so obviously everything begins with Him. But then furthermore, He sends revelation through the angels, and then what does He send? Books. And who does He send those books to? Messengers. So you see the order of the uh, uh, beliefs. And then you could say that Judgment Day, obviously, because that happens at the end of time, Judgment Day. And then Qadr, in terms of it's like the last one, because it's all-encompassing. It's like the final, final. we're going to talk about each of these, inshallah, in due time. So, um, yes, in terms of uh, beliefs in the angels, there are, we have to believe in the angels from multiple perspectives. Number one, that they exist. Number two... We have to believe in their names, the names that have been revealed in Qur'an and Sunnah. And examples of this would be Jibreel, Mikal, and uh, Israfil. These are all names that we know amongst the Malaika. The attributes of them, for example, that, uh, for example the Prophet ﷺ described that Jibreel salam, I saw him and he took up the entire horizon, right? Uh, uh, he took up the entire horizon with 600 wings, right? So you can imagine the scene, he's just standing and staring at this incredible creature that obviously it ha- uh, Jibreel salam, has the ability to change uh, forms, but in his true form, it's, he's, he's huge. And so uh, this is something that is reported in Hadith, for instance. We also know, so well, in the existence of the angels, when we say we believe in the angels, we believe in their existence, in their names, in their attributes, and also in their actions. In their, by actions, I mean like their functions. So what is the function of Jibreel, a.s.? He's the angel of what? Revelation, that's right. He gives spiritual sustenance. Mikal, or Mikail, or Mikhail, depending on whether you want to pronounce it more the, you know, the Hebrew way, etc. Michael, he's the angel of what? Rain and sustenance, vegetation and so forth. So, so what you have, the human being is made up of two things, right? A body and a soul, right? And the body needs nutrients 
And that's what Mikael uh, is basically, or Mikael, that's what he's in charge of. Taking care of the nutrients of the body. Whereas Jibreel alayhi salam, his job is to bring sustenance to the ruh, to the soul. And obviously life is a test, it's not going to go on forever. And so eventually it has to all end. Who's in charge of stopping the whole thing? Israfil, the horn, right? He t- so these three, you can see, you know, I'll give you the test by sustaining your body, sustaining your ruh, and see if you accept or reject it. And then ultimately end it all with uh, Israfil, where that the trumpet will be blown and everything will be destroyed and then everything, everyone will be brought back. Furthermore, there are many different functions that we know. I'm not going to go through all of them because then, subhanAllah, that's going to be a whole course in itself of all the ahadith and uh, mentions of angels and all their functions. But we know that, for example, angels are the ones on your sides recording deeds. Angels are the ones uh, that extract the soul. Angels are the ones that ask, Man Rabbuk, you know, who is your Lord? Munkar al-Nakir, right? They're going to ask on Judgment Day. They're the ones that punish, for example, uh, 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 the, the disbelievers in hellfire. And Allah has various ayat that describe this. Uh, they're the ones that say congratulations and, 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 and bring the souls of the believers to Jannah and paradise. Tibtum, you know, congratulations, good job. In Surah uh, uh, 39, which is Surah Zumar, Allah Ta'ala mentions how they congratulate you and they give you salam and so forth. It's also interesting to note, subhanAllah, that uh, uh, um, there's, a, there's a particular ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah. Allah Ta'ala says, Man kana aduwan lillah if you look into this ayah, Allah is saying, the translation is, whoever is an enemy to Allah and his angels and his messengers and Jibreel and Michael, Mikael or Mikael. Whoever is an angel to these, then indeed Allah is an enemy to the disbelievers. So the question comes, why did Allah Ta'ala only mention Mikael once in the Quran, or Mikael once in the Quran? And why in this particular ayah, when it comes to animosity? And when you look in the tafsir, you find out that uh, some of the Yahud, they had, some of the, 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 the Jews, they had this concept that, well, if Jibreel alayhi salam is the one bringing the revelation about, you know, ahkam uh, 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 and rulings and spirituality and so forth, we don't really like him. But in terms of Mikael, he's the one that brings the wealth. So we like him. Right? So we, we wanna, we favor one angel and we dislike the other angel. So they had this idea and Allah Ta'ala is clarifying, listen, you know, uh, another ayah of Quran, Allah says what? We don't differentiate between the messengers. In other words, you can't say, I like Isa, but I don't like Musa, salam. You can't say, I like Yunus, salam, but I don't like, uh, Idris, or something like this, right? You, you, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You have to understand that all the malaika, and all of the anbiya wa rusul, alayhim salatu salam, maybe Allah's peace and blessings be upon all of them, you have to take them as a package deal. And if you reject one, then you're rejecting all of them. If you're an enemy to one, then you're an enemy to the whole, the whole show, if you will, uh, the whole, the whole belief, the whole concept, all of it falls apart. So yes, we have to believe in the angels, in their existence, in their names, in their attributes, in their actions, or functions, you could say. And then also we have to have love for them. We know that the, um, we, we know that the malaika, they make dua for us. They make dua for the believers. We know that they're constantly making istighfar. In fact, I gave a, a short dars just the other day about this topic, about how the, uh, the malaika, they uh, make dua for us. It's mentioned, I believe it was in Surah Ghafir, if I'm not mistaken. And it's so beautiful and so uh, powerful um, because we're supposed to therefore have love and appreciation just the same way we're supposed to have inam al-mu'minuna ikhwah. You know, the believers are brothers and, and, and they're supposed to have a certain a bond and, and, and love between them because of their faith. Well, guess what? The angels also share that faith. And they share that love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they share that obedience, inshallah. I mean, them even better than us. But they share that obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all of that should be a cause for us to love them. So those are five 
uh, attributes or uh, angles with regards to how we believe in the angels. Those are five different ways. Now, what does it do for us when we have Iman, when we have faith in the angels? What does it do? How does it benefit us? Well, it makes us appreciate Allah Ta'ala's greatness, first and foremost. It makes us appreciate Allah Ta'ala's greatness. And what do I mean by that? I mean that you realize that Allah Ta'ala has way more creation than we could even imagine. Allah Ta'ala's creation is beyond what we know. And there's several ayat that allude to the fact that even what we know is like in terms of jinn and, and angels and uh, paradise and hellfire. Yes, these are things that we know even though we haven't seen them. Allah says there are things that I haven't even told you about, that I have many more creation. So subhanAllah, you have to, it can only make you imagine the greatness of Allah Ta'ala, especially when we look at you know, physics and we, you, know, you have astronauts looking out into the, into the deep, uh, you know, uh, as far as you can go in terms of space. SubhanAllah, it blows, it blows your mind to various galaxies and so on and so forth. It really just blows the mind. If this is the creation, who is the creator? SubhanAllah. How great is the creator? So that's uh, uh, in terms of greatness uh, of Allah. Number two, when we believe in the angels, it also does what? It makes us grateful for Allah's care and concern for us. We know that there are angels, like I said, that take care of our iman, that bring us revelation. We know there are angels that are taking care of our sustenance. We know that they are recording our good deeds, as well as bad, unfortunately for us, but still, good deeds as well. There are angels that are encouraging us towards good. There are angels that help the believers. We know that during the Battle of Badr, there were angels that came down and gave aid to the believers. We know that the, the angels, they surround the halaqat of dhikr, that, that they, they are impressed with the believers. They like to pile up all the way up to arsh, the, all the way up to uh, the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah ta'ala asks them, what are you doing? Oh, we're, you know, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, what are they doing? What are they doing? And then they say, they are remembering you, you know? And what do they want? Uh, they want your paradise, and they're seeking refuge from your hellfire. And I'm very quickly just paraphrasing, but we know the hadith, it's, it's lengthy, you know? And do they, have they ever seen me? Have they ever seen my paradise? Have they, ever, have they ever seen my hellfire? No, no, they haven't. What if they saw it? Then they'd worship you more. Then they'd seek paradise more. Then they'd try to get away from hellfire even more. So then, subhanAllah, Allah Ta'ala mentions that, you know, uh, I, I forgive whoever is in this gathering. This is, this is the, 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 the beauty of, subhanAllah, the halaqat of dhikr, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts such barakah in it because of the angels. So it should increase us in our love for Allah Ta'ala, for His creation of the angels. Furthermore, it makes us grateful that they have to worship at a capacity that is so much higher than ours, and yet Allah Ta'ala only gave us such simple worship. We know that, subhanAllah, the hadith of uh, 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 we know that we were supposed to offer 50 prayers a day. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reduced it, reduced it to finally 5 prayers a day. Why? This is a mercy from Allah. Maybe we deserve, we owe 50 prayers a day just for existence. Just for being, we owe 50 prayers a day. But Allah is saying, listen, I'm going to go easy on you. Whereas the angels, they, some of them make ruku' for millions of years. Some of them are in sujood for millions of years. They just worship Allah constantly. So one, it makes us appreciate that Allah is taking it easy on us by knowing about the angels. It also makes us 